If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter chapter 14. We'll be looking at the second half of Romans chapter 14 and the first few verses of chapter 15 this morning. Pastor Tim Keller relates a story of a high school girl from an ultra-conservative background that taught that it was sinful for women to wear makeup. But the peer pressure on this young lady at school from other even Christian girls from other churches led this young lady to begin putting on makeup after leaving home in the morning and wiping it off before she got home. Now, the Bible, though the Bible nowhere forbids makeup, it does, of course, speak to true beauty for a woman as being found in the purity and beauty of the heart, but it nowhere forbids the wearing of makeup. The girl was violating her own conscience as she did this because she was not personally convinced. She had not grown up being taught and was not convinced in her own conscience that it was okay to wear makeup. And yet she violated her conscience in the wearing of the makeup. And because of her real and actual guilt that came when she disobeyed her parents, this girl was violating her conscience even further. Spiritually, within herself, this young lady was choosing popularity over faithfulness to God. Again, the makeup deals not sins. Everybody on the same page? Y'all together? You got me? Now, then she disobeyed her parents, which we know was sin. But as a result of that whole deal with the makeup, this young lady found herself much more open to real violations of God's will, particularly in her case, Pastor Keller, who knew her personally, relates in the area of sexuality. She had stumbled because her Christian friends at school had mocked her principles on makeup, misguided though they were. What's the point? The point in Romans 14 and 15, and the point in this story is this, violating your conscience or encouraging others to do so is sin, no matter whether the behavior is sinful or not. And the result can be a hardened conscience that finds it easier to commit actual sins thereafter. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that from the Word of God, but we're going to see it as we continue our study this morning in the book of Romans. For those of you visiting with us for the first time, we are, <laughs> I'm thinking toward the end of our study of the book of Romans. We've been looking at this letter. This is sermon number 40 um, for a while. And we've been looking at this letter under the heading of the gospel of the righteousness of God. What's the letter of Romans about? It's about the good news that holy God who demands perfect righteousness from you and from me if we have a right relationship with him, holy God who demands that righteousness gives that righteousness to you as a gift through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to be received and simply taken by faith. And that's crazy good news that holy God would give what he demands at the cost 
of his own son's life. A few weeks back, we turned a major corner in our study when we, when we got to Romans 12, 1 and 2. The first 11 chapters of this book are about the good news, explaining God's plan to save us through Jesus, unfolding all the beautiful truths of justification by faith and why salvation must be by grace and as a gift because of our sinfulness. The fact that we could never earn it or be good enough, it has to be given by God and indeed has been given by the perfect life, sin atoning death and victorious resurrection of his son. In Romans 12, we turned a corner. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, by these first 11 chapters, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So in Romans 12, 1, Paul says, here's the thing. We've we've talked about the, the gospel for 11 chapters. Now, basing what I'm fixing to ask of you on the gospel, on the mercies of God, I want you to give yourselves as living sacrifices to God. And we said there that to daily live out the will of God according to the word of God for the glory of God is the only logical response to the gospel of God. So if you understand Romans 1 through 11, Romans 12, 1 says the only logical response to the gospel of God and all its beauty and all of its glory is to give your life to the one who gave his life for you. So I don't think it makes sense. And so we saw, as Paul began to unpack in in the verses after that, what this will of God for our lives exactly looks like. In other words, what does it look like to be living sacrifices? What does it mean practically to be living sacrifices in response to the gospel? Paul told us in Romans 12, 3 through 16, that it means we're to love one another in the local church. Aside from our relationship to God, what is, what is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's another way of saying what Paul says in Romans 12, 1, give your lives as living sacrifices to God. Love him with everything you got. Well, what's the second commandment Jesus said? The second's like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the, Romans 12, 13, 14, and now into 15, it's all about how to do that, what that looks like, loving other people. And, and in Romans 12, 3 to 16, it means we're to love one another and serve one another in the local church. In Romans 17, or 12, 17 to 21, Paul says, not only that, you're to love your enemies by doing them good even when they do you evil. Because God loved his enemies by doing them good even when you were doing him evil, and it was you and I that were his enemies before Christ. In Romans 13, verses 1 through 14, we saw that, that, that it also means, what, what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? And, and, and as we seek to love others, it means to be loving citizens and neighbors in society, to be good citizens who are loving and full of gospel grace and truth in our society. And then last week, we began to look at gospel harmony in the church. We looked at part one last week from Romans 14 and 15. And what we began to learn last week is this, to proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. We've already dealt generally at the beginning of Romans 12 with the fact that we're to, if we're going to be living sacrifices to God, that means we've got to love one another in the church. But here it takes it a step further. It takes it to a case in point in the church in Rome where they were having differences over non-essential, very key phrase there, non-essential issues. 
Things that the Bible doesn't clearly speak to. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But basically, a real-time problem in Rome. And Paul says, listen, even on these matters, you got to love each other. you got to love one another. Paul said, as we read earlier, live in such harmony. I, I, want, you, I want you to love one another across these differences that ultimately don't matter between you so that with one voice you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what are these non-essential issues? Chapter 14, verse 1 calls them opinions. Literally, the, the, the word there can be translated disputable matters. That's the literal translation of the Greek word there, disputable matters. What are those these disputable matters. Well, there's, there are matters that can be disputed. There's, there are matters that, that, that there's room for difference on. Some have called these uh, non-essentials or matters of conscience or areas of Christian freedom. In the context there in Romans 14, last week we began to see, in, in, in Rome it involved things like eating meat. Now, what was going on in that particular context was you had Jews who had grown up uh, in Judaism and under the Old Testament laws where things like pork were unclean and not and, and forbidden for them to eat, right? But when they came to Christ, they were suddenly free to eat pork and whatever else was on the unclean list from the Old Testament because Jesus declared all things clean, right? Everybody tracking with me? And so you had Jews saved out of Judaism and the Old Testament dietary laws who were just saying, you know, I don't know, I, I've, never, I've never had pork. I'm not going to start now. It's just too much for me to overcome to think about eating pork when I've never eaten pork. But on the other side, you had pagans, Gentiles, saved out of all kind of paganism. And in the temple sacrifices to idols, meat was, in, was involved and sacrificed and then sold in the marketplace. And so some of those folks were coming out of paganism. And, and in their minds, that meat sold at the, at the supermarket was was contaminated by idol worship. Even though Paul in another place says idols are nothing and the meat's clean, it's fine to eat it, they struggle. So you've got, you got this going on. So eating, the eating of meat was an issue. In Romans 14, 14, Paul makes this clear, uh, unequivocal statement, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Let's just settle the matter once and for all and, and clearly. Here's our baseline, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So Paul says, none of the meat, pork's not unclean anymore. If it, even though it's been offered in idol's temple, it's not unclean. You can eat meat. Wherever you come from, you can enjoy meat created by God, given by God as a gift. In the Lord Jesus, nothing is unclean. He, he likely had in mind Mark 7, 15 to 23, where Jesus said that it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. And in Mark... Uh, Mark 7, verse 19, Mark makes this comment about what Jesus just said. He said, thus he, Jesus, declared all foods clean. Another issue in, at the church in Rome, is, as you'll see in, in our text as we read a little bit later, uh, was the drinking of wine. Uh, probably because there was, and certainly today there is, so much abuse of alcohol. In that particular culture, it would not have been so much on the Jewish side of the church. It would have been on the Gentile side. There in Rome, there was an annual festival called the Bacchanalia, the Roman Bacchanalia Festival, which was basically a, a long number of days where basically you got drunk, had all the sex and, and perversion you could stand. That's, that's just what it was. And so people who had lived in Rome and seen all of that and the association with wine and alcohol and, and, and the sin that followed had trouble in the church 
Even though there was freedom in Christ to enjoy a glass of wine, they had trouble doing so. Another issue in the church at Rome was a celebration of special days. Again, as we think about our, the, the ones who would have come out of a Jewish background, the Sabbath, um, Paul here appears to, to move that over to a realm of, of, as a matter of conscience and not of Christian necessity. There were other days, of course, uh, feast days from, from, from the Old Testament that some of, of the belie- new Jewish believers would have had, which had struggles with. Examples today would be days like Easter and Christmas. Nowhere is it discussed or commanded. And in fact, um, every day should be the celebration of both Christmas and Easter for the believer, amen, that Jesus came and that he rose that he came to be our Savior and that he rose from the dead and finished the work. Amen? So every day is Easter, every day is Christmas for the believer, and yet there's nothing wrong with, we know, making a, having a special day that we call Christmas and a special day that we call Easter. And yet some, in this case, struggle with such things. Other contemporary examples would be the use of tobacco, wearing makeup. We mentioned that one earlier. Necessity of certain Sunday clothes. Um, your list is probably longer than that one. And you, there are things that... The Bible doesn't really deal with. It doesn't really matter, right? I want to be crystal clear. These are the things we're talking about. What we are not talking about is something the Bible says is sin or the Bible says is okay, that the Bible speaks to clearly, okay? Is everybody together? These are the things the Bible doesn't say about, okay? Very important. Many of these things can be and sometimes are pushed to the point of legalism. And at that point, the position that says a certain way of thinking and acting in these areas affects our salvation, that way of thinking must sternly be rebuked and resisted and refused. We see this at the church at Galatia, where Peter had begun in the freedom that he had in Christ to eat pork along with the Gentile believers in Galatia. But then some of his buddies, Jewish buddies from Jerusalem, came down to Galatia, came down to hang out. And when they got there, he quit eating pork and hanging out, sitting at the table with his Jewish folks because, remember, they were unclean if you were a Jew. And he just pulled away and didn't eat any pork and, 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 and sat with his Jewish buddies at table. And you remember what happened? Right in the middle of dinner, Paul gets up and walks over to Peter and says, Peter, i got a problem with your behavior at dinner tonight. And right in front of his buddies, I believe, he says, you still got bacon on your breath from breakfast before they got here today? You're playing the hypocrite. And you know that you've trusted Jesus as your Savior. You know that it's not whether you eat or don't eat meat that makes you right with holy God. It's the finished work of Christ. You are justified by faith in Christ alone, and you rebuked Peter. And so should we when someone pushes these matters to the point of it affecting our salvation. Are you all with me? However, throughout the history of the church, there have always been differences on some of these things. Matters of conscience, that's why, some, that's why that term has come about. And very often, there's no belief that a particular behavior ensures or nullifies our salvation by grace in Christ, but rather, some believers do believe that Christians are not free to practice certain behaviors and are, in fact, obligated to practice others. Paul calls these believers in our text weak. When a weak believer looks at another believer and judges him or her for for their exercise of gospel freedom concerning one of these non-essential issues, we saw last week several things about the weak believer. First, the weak believer has forgotten that we are justified by faith in Christ alone, chapter 14, verse 3. Also, we saw that the weak believer has forgotten when they begin to condemn and judge others for exercising freedom in these areas. The weak believer has forgotten that 
God is the only master of all of us. Chapter 14, verse 4. I'm nobody's boss in the Christian life and neither are you. Amen? Only God himself. And then we saw that thirdly that the weak believer sometimes wrongly assumes that the strong believer is disregarding their relationship to God in a particular behavior. Chapter 14, verses 5 through 9. Sometimes the weak believer who doesn't feel free to, let's just say, eat that meat, that pork, would look at a believer who is free to eat pork and say, how can we be in the same church and you call yourself a believer? How can you think you're anywhere close to Jesus if you eat pork? And sometimes this is the case, and, 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 and they wrongly assume that that person's relationship with Jesus can't possibly be right if they had a ham sandwich at lunch. And then lastly, uh, last Sunday, we saw that the weak believer must remember that he or she will answer individually to God for his and her, or her own behavior, as will we all. The text we ended with last week was verse 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God, of himself. I'm not answering for you. You're not going to answer to God for me. We ended with that uh, great quote from one of the world's greatest theologians, my grandmother Kathleen Kelly, who said, Son, just mind your own little red wagon. And when it comes to these matters, what we found is that's the best advice. We continue this morning to talk about these things. Thank you for letting me reintroduce all of that because the bottom line is if you're you're here for the first time uh, today, you'd have been lost without that. Uh, If you weren't here last Sunday and and for the rest of you, thank you for bearing with me. Maybe uh, it'll help you put it all together now. We continue to talk about gospel harmony in the church. Again, to proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. We pick up the reading in Romans 14, verse 13, where Paul says, therefore, again, he just said, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, What is that supposed to do for us? How does that change our behavior? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, Paul says, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By the way, that's been the theme, hasn't it? Remember? What does it mean to be a living sacrifice to God? Love everybody, and, and he breaks it down. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Implied there is in the life of another believer. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Listen to what Paul says in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother 
to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is why I said at the beginning of the message and, and gave you that story about the young lady. Wearing makeup, if you're not convinced it's okay under God, is sin because it violates your conscience and is not done from faith. Verse 15, verse, chapter 15, verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days, as he's quoting there from the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and the, through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Summing it all up, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, to proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. First thing I want you to see from these verses this morning is this. The strong believer, the one who understands his freedom on these non-essential issues, the one there in the church in Rome that understood he could eat meat, that he could drink wine, that he didn't have to celebrate certain days. He's freed from all of those things in Christ. The strong believer has a gospel obligation to lovingly sacrifice his or her freedom for the good of the weak brother. Again, and I know it's redundant, we just read it, but I just want you to see it in the text again. Chapter 14, verse 13, the second part. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He's talking to the strong believer. And he said, here's the thing. Don't be judging each other anymore. In fact, strong believer, one who gets the truth about your freedom, make the decision to never cause that brother to stumble, never to put a hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 1 of chapter 15, we who are strong, he just outright says it here. This is where I got the whole point from. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. Now, these are not sins when it says failings. The idea here is their, 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 their lack of understanding about the freedom they have in Christ in these non-essential areas. And we have an obligation to bear with them and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For, why? Why should we go to that kind of trouble to love one another? I mean, y'all tracking with me? He's talking to the ones that understand Scripture the best and clearest. Understand how the gospel applies in, in, in all these different areas of life. And, and, and yet he says to them, you've got it right, but just because you've got it right don't mean you get to flaunt your rightness and your freedom. In fact, you get to limit your freedom out of love. For, why? For Christ. <laughs> Christ did not please himself. You know, you, know, you, know who, you know who could say, and it was the only, the only one could ever say it, and it would be absolutely, infinitely true. You know who could say, 
I have the right to stay right here and never to go to any trouble for anybody. The Son of God at the right hand of the Father could say that, and it was absolutely and infinitely true. And yet he laid down that right. He was at the right hand of the Father, reigning. He King of kings and Lord. I mean, I mean he, he, the master of the universe. He created the world. And yet he stepped down from that. He laid down all of his rights and heavenly privileges and became one of us that he might serve us. And that's how he loved us. That's what it means when Jesus said in John 3, for God so in this way loved the world that he gave his son, that his son would leave heaven and become a man in order to become a savior of the world. For Christ not pleased himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. My reproaches, my sin, the stuff that God needed to judge because of my behavior, he put it on Jesus. That's how Jesus loved me. Verse 15 of Chapter 14 again, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good, that ham sandwich, be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What's it really about? It's not about whether you can have ham or you can't. It's not about whether you can drink wine or you can't. It's not about whether you... Observe special days or you don't. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ, whoever's willing to lay down his freedom, in other words, to to serve a weak believer, is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue. What do you run after? Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You know what sometimes happens in these areas? That when, when someone comes to understand their freedom in Christ, they pursue the enjoyment of their freedom in Christ. Whether that be through the eating of pork or the drinking of wine, they pursue the exercise of that freedom. They're, they're, it, they're like a kid with a new toy, right? Amen? How many of y'all ever... Y'all remember when you learned some of this stuff? Maybe, 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 maybe you're not quite there yet, but maybe, maybe you remember learning the first time that you could have... You had freedom. All of a sudden, did the pursuit become enjoying that freedom or is the pursuit still what it should be? That is what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding in the body of Christ. Verse 21 says, If it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. You see, the strong believer has a gospel obligation to lovingly sacrifice his or her freedom for the good of the weak believer. And can I just say this? The definition of the strong believer in this passage is the one who understands his freedom in Christ, the one who understands he could drink wine or, or eat meat or, or didn't have to celebrate special days. But can I just say that the truly strong believer based on this passage also is the one who is willing to say, I understand my freedom, but I lay it down out of love. I love you, sister. I love you, brother, more than I love my freedom to drink wine, to eat meat, whatever, and I'm willing to forego my freedom to show you that I love you, number one, and number two, to make sure I don't push you to violate your own conscience. I don't do anything to hurt you. And if I never eat meat again, if I never drink wine again, I'm okay with that if 
you know that you're loved and if your conscience is guarded by my behavior. Now, we're going to talk about some practical things later. Don't, don't fly to a bunch of conclusions yet. Just hang on, okay? The strong believer has a gospel obligation. Remember last Sunday I told you, he has some things to say about the weak believer. We looked at those. But these, all of chapter 14, the first part of verse 15, let me tell you, it's really to us, the strong believer. It's really to you if you're the strong believer here today. The burden lies on us. A strong believer has a gospel obligation to lovingly sacrifice his or her freedom for the good of the weak believer. Why? Because, point number two, there's only two, and then some practical matters. Because, hear me, we've already talked about it, but because a compromise of conscience, it's on the screen, even on non-essential issues for the weak believer is dangerously destructive. This stuff matters in the heart and mind of the weak believer. How we love one another, strong to weak, in these matters can wreck the weak believer. The reason we have to be faithful in our obligation as strong believers to love and sacrifice our freedom for the weak is because a compromise of conscience is dangerously destructive. See it in the text, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The first part of that verse, by the way, is addressed to the weaker brother. Quit judging your stronger brother who eats and drinks. Quit it. But strong, don't ever put a stumbling block. Don't cause your weaker brother to compromise their conscience. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord, that Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. It goes back to that conscience deal. For Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That's a strong word. Verse 20, do not, for the sake of food, again, destroy the work of God implied in the life of another believer. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned. Listen to it. This is the word of God. For whoever has doubts on a non-essential issue is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So here's the picture. If Cliff and I decide that that I'm I'm going to have Cliff over for dinner, okay? And Cliff was a former Jew, saved by the grace of God, now part of the the member of the body of Christ here. We're at the church in Rome. If I invite Cliff over, I know, I know Cliff's background. I know he came out of Judaism. I know he still practices kosher eating and so forth. And I invite him over, and man, I, I walk out, and I say, Cliff, we're going to celebrate our freedom in Christ today, brother. And I plop down on the kitchen table the biggest, juiciest honey-baked ham you ever did see. I have ceased to love Cliff, not walking in love. 
But, but stay with me. Cliff's freaking out internally because he cannot in his mind, he's not understood the gospel to the point that he believes it's okay for him to eat pork. He doesn't believe that he needs to add to the work of Christ for salvation. He just doesn't understand that it's okay for him to eat this ham because God told him in the Old Testament not to eat ham. You tracking? And he hasn't understood that Jesus has declared all foods to be clean. If Cliff, because I'm his host and he's my guest, says okay and eats, the Bible says it is sin for Cliff. And I have made my brother stumble because I've caused him to violate his conscience. Now, take and apply it to whatever it is on your indifferent list, on your non-essentials list. And if that's how we treat one another, and or rather, if you're the weak brother, if the weak brother partakes and 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 because of pressure or because I'm, I'm, I had him into my home and, and served him ham, he eats it anyway, he violates his conscience and he sins. And Paul says, I've got responsibility in that if I put it on the table. Tim Keller says, if he does, does so, if he eats without being truly convinced that it is not contrary to God's will, that will hurt his conscience. Because what's going to happen to Cliff as he sits there? He will feel guilty, won't he? Right? Yet now that he is ignoring that guilt, he may become open to doing other things that are not non-essential and indifferent, but truly wrong. You see, God in the Scriptures holds up the matter of conscience, especially an informed, biblically informed, spirit-influenced conscience. And what he's saying here is don't be violating your conscience. You don't play with that. Because you violated an area that's, that's not actually black and white, it still hardens your conscience to the areas where it's clear. Remember the high school girl in her makeup? Wearing makeup's not sin. But she was not convinced that it wasn't sin. And yet she allowed her friends or other Christian girlfriends to influence her until she compromised her confidence, her conscience, and snuck the makeup. And immediately she went into sin by disobeying her parents and ended up moving on to sexual sin. Now, what you do not need to do with this story that I've told you about this young high school girl is say, yep, the make makeup's the gateway to hell. You don't need to take these indifferent things and say, yep, see there, you, you, you compromise on some of these things. And, and Because what you're doing is you're revealing the fact that you're the weaker brother and you're saying that something the Bible doesn't say is sinful is sinful, basically. Y'all all right? We just need to handle that. What happened in the story is she hardened her conscience. She sinned against her conscience. She, 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 she violated her conscience. And in doing so, it was easier to violate her conscience when there was actually a black and white issue on the table in her life. Now, obviously, those other Christian girls were teenagers in the story. Young and probably having never considered the Scriptures we're studying this morning. How many of you, for the first time, this is the first time you've ever studied this passage? Romans 14, 15. I mean, it's the first time. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Maybe these young, young girls in that situation. So I don't want to be too hard on, the, on, on these friends, right? 
But I do want us all to see from our study this morning that the loving thing, the strong thing for those girls to have done would have been to not push her in that area of makeup, to respect her enough to love her without makeup and not make her feel less than because of her conviction and her makeup lessness. Amen? And you know, that's a story about teenage girls at high school, but here's the deal. This stuff's real for you. Sir, ma'am, right? Because there's these indifferent things in our world today, right? There's these matters, disputable matters, these matters of conscience in our world today. And that's how we ought to love. You see, a compromise of conscience, even on non-essential matters for the weak believer, Paul says it will destroy them. And so hear me. If there are certain things that maybe from our study you understand now, you're, you're free to, to do. But in, in here, you're, you're not free to do. You understand it in your head, but not in your, your conscience won't let you feel free. Even thinking about it makes you feel guilty. Don't do it. Okay? Strong believer, if you understand your freedom and exercise your freedom, do not exercise your freedom in such a way that it would cause your brother or sister to under peer pressure, go there and violate their conscience, even though their conscience may not be fully informed. That's, that's how we have such harmony that Paul calls us to. And so I hope you see that to proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. Four practical points as we close. First of all, so, so, so what does this look like? How do, we, how, do we, how do we flesh some of this out? First of all, the weak believer should be open to and pursue, I might add, Bible study and discussion with other believers about gospel freedom on these non-essential issues. It is good for someone who doesn't understand their freedom in Christ to study and learn and grow and understand that Christ has set us free on all the levels that we've discussed this morning. It is, it is good. And so it's not wrong to, to have Bible studies on this kind of thing. It's not wrong. In fact, if, if, you're, if there's something that, that you struggle with that other believers don't struggle with, you need to study the Scriptures to see if it's one of these issues. If it's one of these issues, you need to see what the Scripture says and how it clarifies these things. The weak believers should be open to and even pursue Bible study about gospel freedom on these non-essential issues. But secondly, another practical thing, the strong believer should never exercise his or her freedom in order to insist on his or her right to eat or drink, etc., before a weak believer. Don't, don't, don't exercise your freedom to flaunt it in front of the weak. In other words, because, see, adults, we act like teenagers sometimes, don't exercise your freedom in front of somebody you know struggles with that just to say you did because you can. Being right in that situation is wrong. Hello? You tracking with me? Being right about what you're doing, but doing it in a way that it is not loving to your brother makes it wrong. That's why Paul in another place says, keep your faith to yourself. Thirdly, the strong believer should never push a weak believer to go against his or her conscience. We've already said this on a non-essential issue. And further, listen to this. Wouldn't this be beautiful? And that strong believer, not only should you not push that, that uh, you know, here it is. I should not push Clay, Cliff to eat ham. 
Back to, back to my, my living room. I should not serve him ham. But more than that, if it comes up in conversation, I should, I should remind him of verse 17 of chapter 14. Cliff, here's the thing, brother. We can talk about it. We can discuss it. We can go to the Scripture and see what it says. But here's what I want you to know ultimately. The kingdom of God is not about, about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And here's the deal. Wherever we land on this pork deal, man, I love you. And, and what Jesus is more concerned about than whether you eat pork or you don't eat pork, Cliff, is, is, is how me and you get along and love each other and serve each other in the body. The peace we have, the joy we have, living in righteousness as we seek to reach a lost and dying world. That's what's most important. And so, and so, Cliff, before we even start discussing this and have a Bible study on pork and whether a Christian can or cannot eat it, I just want you to know I love you, and that's what's going to reign in our relationship. So, strong brother, that's your responsibility. John Piper says, love your brothers and sisters. Listen, love your brothers and sisters more than you love your liberty with food and drink and days. Your brothers and sisters are more important than your enjoyment of your freedom. Verse 19 of chapter 14 says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Tim Keller said, the strong must not avoid or write off the weaker brothers, but seek to stay close to them. What this passage makes clear is if you're, if you're the one who, who, who knows you can uh, drink wine or eat meat or, or don't have to celebrate special days, the tendency is just say, hey, you know... Yeah, they, they've kind of, they're, they're all, they're all bound up over there. I'm going to hang with my free boys over here and, and let those that are kind of ultra conservative and tight and, you know, whatever, I'm just going to kind of, I ain't got time for that. No. You don't have time for the ones for whom Christ died? You, you don't have time to accept the ones that Jesus accepted and welcomed? Really? Who do we think we are, right? Who do we think we are? And that's the point. Finally, number four, a strong believer may understand his or her freedom in Christ on a particular non-essential issue, listen, but choose not to exercise that freedom with other strong believers due not to the weaker brother, but other factors, life experiences, or commitments such as vows and fasts that are, that are, that are done as acts of worship to the Lord, for example. And in this situation, other strong believers should not mistakenly assume that this brother or sister is weak and without understanding of their freedom. One of those mature believers I know understands his freedom in Christ, understands that if he wanted to have a glass of wine with dinner, it would be biblically okay. But for other reasons, namely, his, his younger life before Christ in basic alcoholism as a very, very young man made a vow to God that he would not live that way, that he would not touch the stuff, not because he can't in his freedom in Christ, but because of all the the, just the destruction it did in his own heart when he was living in sin and abusing alcohol. And so some would look at this one that I respect as much as any believer in the world, and I mean that because he's my dad, and they say he's weak because he doesn't understand his freedom. No, he, he understands it better than you do, probably. <laughs> 
He's got it better than I did for a long, long time, and he's had it. But in his personal relationship with the Lord, it's the decision he's made that I honor and I respect and I thank God for. And he's not the weaker brother, he's the stronger brother. He gets his freedom. So don't assume just because someone doesn't exercise their freedom that they are weak. That's a good place to end, isn't it? To proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. Romans 14, verse 6. Here's what we ought to think when we look at each other. And some of these issues pop up. We ought to believe... Romans 14, verse 6, that the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That ought to be our default setting. When I see you eating or not eating, if I'm on another side side of that coin, I'll just assume whatever you're doing, you're doing it to honor God. Now, you may... You may need to learn something from the Bible if you don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. But what I ought to assume is that what you're doing, you're doing as as a way of honoring Jesus. And that's what you ought to assume about me. And and, and just imagine, if that's what we assumed about each other on all these things that keep us divided. Romans 15, verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement, this is my prayer, grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How beautiful will the body of Christ be as we learn to love one another and live in such harmony. And the beauty of his unified, overflowing with love church will point our world to our captivatingly beautiful Savior himself to proactively love and accept our brothers and sisters in Christ with whom we disagree on non-essential issues is the only logical response to the gospel of God. If you want to know more about this, Wednesday evening, 6.30, see for yourself Bible study. Let's pray together.